P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Uh, This morning, I have a very interesting guest Sheila Wysocki. Sheila is the queen of cold case investigations. How do you like that, Sheila? <laughs> oh, I, I don't even know what to say to that. I, I think that might be a little overstatement. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. But I, I appreciate so. it. <clears throat> yeah, so I know you're, you're someplace in the south. Where are you actually? Oh, I'm in the deep south. I'm in Tennessee. In Tennessee, Okay. Yeah, I, I think I never quite knew uh, what state you were in, even though I've seen you around for years and I met you once, And but I guess I never, I missed that part. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I do have, um, I work in Texas and uh, we have other places that we do live, so I do bounce around a little bit. And sorry about my throat. Um, I am recovering from COVID. I'm one of the people that got it pretty bad. And so um, I run out of breath quickly. So I don't want people to think what's wrong with her. Interesting. That's interesting. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, How long were you down? Uh, I was down for a month. I actually ended up in the hospital. So it's nothing to uh, play with. Um, It's, as I said to one of the I did a report on it with the local news person because they've made it such a political thing. And I'm like, who I voted for doesn't mean that's not the reason I ended up at the hospital. It is a real virus. Yeah, exactly. It's it's nothing to play around with. Uh, so curious, are you going to still get the vaccine even though you've had the virus? So I have to wait 90 days, so I'm still in the waiting period, and yes, I, I'm going to do, because I've had COVID, I'm doing the one shot. Um, I only have to do one shot by Pfizer, and so that is what I'm doing, and it's been, you know, I'm in the deep south, and so it's very volatile here on the decision, and I have been very, very vocal on my decision on it. Well, good for you, Sheila, because... Um I mean, I I understand the concerns. I understand that, you know, the testing was quick. Um, there's concerns about all, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that people think it's going right. to change our DNA and all kinds of crazy things. But you know what? Death is final. <laughs> and I don't like that well, part. Well, and <laughs> I'll tell you from my personal experience, being on oxygen and not being able to communicate with people and not having anybody around you except for people in hazmat suits, not fun. So, um, and I want to protect where my husband's in the nursing um, home business and I want to protect our elderly community. So it's not a hard decision for me. So, and I'm sorry to get off on, on that, but no, that's, no, why my that's... Thro- that's why I sound different. 
Well, every time, I've, in the last couple of months, I've had to drop my husband off at emergency because that's the only way you can see the doctor these days. And um, uh, every time I do that, I think of all the people that have either seen their loved one go off in an ambulance or dropped them off in emergency and never see them again. And I think about that each time. Um, so oh, it's I, terrible. I, my, well, I will say this. When you have to make a decision on whether or not you're going into the hospital, my husband had COVID also. And mm. we, he, I, ha, I had to think, okay, if I bring the ambulance in, I'm exposing them. So I chose to have him drop me off. And that is the hardest thing, saying goodbye, wondering, mm. you know, are you going to see this person again? Because this mm-hmm. is bad. Yeah, and what's uh, what's the mass situation like where you are, Sheila? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm being in the South, um, uh-huh. it is optional in some areas. I choose to wear a mask, uh, and do I hate it? Absolutely, it's not fun, especially now with breathing as an issue, but it is optional. And with, um, you know, different communities, uh, they believe it's a hoax. And so they have chosen not to enforce masks. Now, in Nashville, the mayor there has chosen to enforce it, probably to the point of, you know, making people angry. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I'm glad I'm not in politics because I don't want to be responsible for people's lives. There's no easy answer, for sure. No. No easy answer. So, anyway, well, it's nice talking I'm, to you about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're um, out of the woods and out of the hospital and you're just progressing, you know, and getting better and better every day. I'm glad to hear that. So, um, Sheila, you're you're a private investigator, and are you licensed in more than one state? I am. I am only licensed in two states right now. If I go into another state, my I will hire a company to work with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And actually, for those for those that don't know that, that is the process you need to do if you're not licensed well, <laughs> in the state. <laughs> it is shocking how many times I hear people just going in and doing whatever, and I'm like, "Is that legal? Can you testify in court?" Then you all that information you've gotten can you use it well you know nevada is probably the the most stringent and you can be arrested in nevada for conducting investigations there without being licensed so (laughs) some states take it very seriously yeah right so um and now i know you do cold cases and tell us about sheila how you started into the cold case world well, I, I actually started um, in the 80s. Um, my college roommate was brutally raped and murdered in uh, college. And, um, you know, I kind of, I was in, you know, I was in my 20s. And I worked with the police initially, the detectives on, back then, it, it's so different now. But back then, um, we would meet and talk about the case and who was around my roommate, Angie, and, you know, I met with different people, brought the information back. Um, interesting, I, I recently talked uh, about this 
on um, a show, but I used to meet the one police officer at a bar all the time. I don't think they can do that anymore, but um, <laughs> we would talk about the case. I'm not a drinker. He was a drinker. He was a drinker. Um, and so we always met at the same spot, but we, um, we talked about the things that I think are even the basics now who, you know, always who's around the victim and who was the victim. And so Mm -hmm. we, you know, I learned a lot then and then it went cold. I met my husband and moved away. So afterwards, 20 years later, Through circumstances, I called the police to find out where the case was. At that point, I found out not one single person had called about her case. And I think Mm. that was the most devastating moment of the entire process was, you know, this was a very vivacious, adorable person. And why why would she be forgotten like that? And doesn't she deserve justice? So that started my journey on getting a um, PI license. I was absolutely blown off by the Dallas Police Department. And we joke about it now. Some of the um, officers and I have seen each other since then. But, um, you know, I thought stupidly, if I got my PI license, they would open up their files to me and Uh they would welcome Uh me. That didn't happen. So I had to learn back then how to do it myself. And in 2010, the suspect who then was convicted and he is, uh, he was found guilty is now on death row. Okay. Now what school, what university were you going to? Southern Methodist university in Dallas, Texas. Okay. And was, was Angie killed on the campus or someplace else? She was killed, so she had moved out to an apartment, and she had only been there, I want to say, a week or two. The reason, she was going to live in the sorority house, and she met a young man and wanted a little more flexibility uh, than, you know, you couldn't have boys on the second floor. There were a lot of rules, Mm -hmm. and so she uh, decided to get a a condo back then, and her mom made the investment into a condo, and they chose well. This is what is so important. I think people, you know, think, well, it's, you know, you always want to blame the victim for some reason, but they chose a place second floor, well lit, and it was secure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you never know when evil's going to walk into your life. And what are the facts of the case, Sheila? <laughs> so she went out with some friends and she came back and somebody knocked at her door and she opened the door. It was around one thirty in the morning and it happened to be, I call him the beast. Um, and he said to her, can I use the restroom and uh, your telephone? And she allowed him to come in. And the reason we know, you know, we ask those questions is she immediately called her boyfriend at that time and told him on the phone that some strange man wanted to use her bathroom. And as she was talking about a place called Park at Market, which was a convenience store still there around Mm -hmm. the corner, you know, she said, do they have a telephone? But then the phone went dead, and her boyfriend at that time 
got into his truck. It's about a 20-minute drive, and he had a phone back then, which is shocking for people that don't know this, right. but back in the 80s, having yeah. a phone is a big deal. We did right. not have 911 back then either. So he kept calling her and calling her, and the phone kept ringing and ringing. When he got to her condo, since she had mentioned park at market, her car was still there. But since she mentioned park at market after he knocked on the two doors, he drove over to park at market, which gave the opportunity of the beast to leave, who, you know, cleaned up in the shower and left. Um, but she was uh, stabbed, brutally stabbed to where it looked like her heart had been cut out of her body mm. when the police mm-hmm. found her. And has she ever seen this man before? No, and you know, that's the interesting part about it. When I was younger, um, working with the detectives, I was told who they thought did it. So my entire 20 years before I made that call, I thought this particular person is very public. He and I have been on many shows talking about it. But the police told me it was Russell Buchanan, who was the last person to see her alive. And so all the focus of my entire life had had been on Russell. And then when the DNA came back as the name of the beast is Donald Beth, well, when the police officer called me, the detective, Linda Crum, who I have so much respect for, when she called to tell me his name, I was like waiting to hear Russell Buchanan. And she says, Donald Beth. And I started thinking, okay, fraternity, you know, where, how did Angie know him? Well, it turned out he had, he was a serial Donald, uh, the beast, was a serial rapist. He had raped, we know of five women, aggressive. I mean, horribly. He had mm-hmm. gotten out of jail and um, he got out for a 1977 aggravated rape. And he was out when he raped and murdered Angie. Hmm. And who's Russell Buchanan? Russell Buchanan was, he was in our friend group. He uh, was an architect, uh, older than us. So he was probably five or six years older. He was an established architect in the the, uh, community. And he just hung out with us. We used to play flag football and Every Sunday, all get together and do different things, and he's just one of those guys. And because Angie was an electrical engineer, computer science major, she was a triple major. I can't remember the third thing. She was so smart, but um, she was trying to graduate early to get out in the work field, and she wanted you know to network with Russell. And so they went out. We used to go to private. Um, clubs back in the 80s where, you know, they had a a bouncer and, you know, you had to have a membership. And so uh, she was out with him in what is called the Rio room. It's no longer there. And was then, did he become the person of interest for the police department? Oh, absolutely. And the interesting thing about that, now, back in the 80s, there were... uh, several cases that were very high profile in Texas. And one of them was a case, uh, Cullen Davis. Cullen Davis was on trial, on trial for, uh, the 
the suspected murder of his stepdaughter and I think the bodyguard or the boyfriend of Priscilla Davis. The attorney in that case is called Racehorse Haynes. In the, you know, layperson's world, if you hired Racehorse Haynes, you were guilty, but you were going to get off. Well, Russell Buchanan, I was told, hired Racehorse Haynes. When in fact, Racehorse Haynes just happened to be a neighbor of Russell Buchanan's mom and dad. And so when the police were telling me he, when the detective was telling me that he was the suspect, that they can't touch him because he hired Racehorse Haynes and he fled the country. I knew hmm. he was guilty because that's what right. the police told me. Great it was a done deal for me now, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've taken those things and learned from it. If you don't have the actual evidence yourself, you really mm. can't make those calls. And so Russell and I are really good friends now. And huh. um, we, when we went to trial, I said to Russell, I need to talk to you afterwards because you're not allowed to talk to people, witnesses during mm-hmm. the trial. And I called Russell and said, hey, I want to meet with you and I want to uh, talk to your wife also. And so we sat down and I said, I want to hear everything you know of this case. Mm-hmm. And the perspective from his side versus my side, it, it was just polar opposites. Really? The police officers would come and pick him up after work and drive him in. And they would drive him past where um, Ruby, oh, what was his name? Jack Ruby was shot. Okay. And they would slowly pass and say to him, well, that's where Jack Ruby was shot. And everything in the car that they said to him was very negative and um, just scared him. He was a kid. And then they'd take him in for questioning. And he did go in for questioning. He did go in for a lie detector test. And the thing that was really a problem for Russell back then, and this is pivotal now, is the the semen taken from the scene with um, Angie, there were secretors and non-secretors. Russell Uh was a non-secretor. And one other person was a non-secretor, but he was cleared because of his um, alibi. So Russell was their prime suspect. And then he took a lie detector test, passed it, but then the FBI came in and said, oh, no, he's deceptive. So they said he didn't pass it. So you so, know, they, all so they lied. Things- so the FBI lied. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know if he did or didn't pass it. It's in the file now, but I'm not smart enough to know what a, a, a polygraph means. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I all I knew was that they said he did it. So, of course, I'm in my mm-hmm. 20s. Of course he did it. And this is the evidence mm-hmm. against him. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out now with DNA, which is the reason we got Donald Best, is, you know, we were able to match him. And I think it was one to three trillion. I mean, can you imagine? I um, and so, you know, he's a, he's a darn good match. Um, but 
anyway, I didn't mean to go on too much about no, that. No, no, that's that's interesting. So so I, I can't imagine what happened to Russell's life. I mean, it must have destroyed him. So that's a great question because um, he was a suspected murderer. Mm. And when I... So when the police called to tell me that it was not Russell Buchanan, first of all, I did not believe him. So I talked to the assistant <laughs> district attorney, right. and I was like, let's talk chain of evidence. And so we did, uh, we went through that before I would even believe it. And it was pretty solid because, uh, well, it was solid because of the DNA. But anyway, the... Um, the conversation I had with the sergeant at the time at the Dallas Police Department, I said, are you going to call Russell and let him off the hook? And I said, if you don't call him within the next 15 minutes, I'm going to call him. Well, they finally called him. The one thing was interesting when we were talking about opening, sorry, I have dogs. When we were talking about opening the case, um, they told me Russell lived at home with his mom, so of course he's guilty, and um, <laughs> a lot of other things. And so I'm thinking he's a loner, you know, murderer mm-hmm. living at home. Fits um, the profile. But, oh, he totally did. By the way, he had a wife, a thriving business, and a uh, stepchild, so he did not live at home with his mom. Mm. Anyway... Yeah, so the, the sergeant did call him, and then the um, when I met with him, he told his entire side, and then I told him what I knew about him. They used to follow him all over. He'd mm-hmm. stop at a stop sign. They would drive up next to him just to make sure he knew that, you know, he was being followed. He went to grad school. He didn't. You know, even if even if you're not a suspect, that would be freaky. <laughs> you know. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Can you imagine? Mm-mm. And you know, he went to grad school in uh, England, and that's when I was told he leaves the country, fled the country. Sorry. And then um, when he so came he didn't, back, he actually didn't flee. He just he was just going no, out of the country he, for grad school. Exactly. So all the things, it's all the way you present it, correct? Right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, being that, and a lot of people criticize me for thinking it was Russell because, you know, I was meeting with them, giving the information to the police, but I was in my 20s, and back in the 80s, the police could do no wrong. You, right. You know, it's like a doctor. You never questioned a doctor or, or a police officer or a priest. Those are mm-hmm. the people that back then, you know, they were closer to God in in my world, in my very conservative uh, Southern place. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I will tell you, when I met with Russell and his wife, I told them what I knew and then asked for forgiveness because I had resented this man for 26 years. And... Mm-hmm taught me such a great lesson because his mother wrote me the nicest letter I've ever gotten from anybody and thanked me for being so persistent to find the truth in the cloud of, of 
suspicion is now off of Russell. So, Sheila, okay, so this originally happened in the 80s. You kind of left, yes. you know, left town, went about your business, did had another life. And when you called them to find out the status, what year was that? That was 2004, and that's, I was blown off um, so much. I lived in one of the side effects of having Angie murdered is security is hugely important to me. And mm-hmm. so my husband and I have always lived in gated communities and the head of security in the community we live, he and I were talking about, um, you know, what to do to get this information. And he said, I'll sponsor you to become a private investigator. You can work for me. Mm-hmm. So he sponsored me and taught me. I worked, I mean, I worked really great cases, but not what I wanted to do. Um, you know, the cheating cases, the bullying online was really big back then. And then right. a lot of, um, you know, inappropriate pictures being put online, tracking down, you know, the revenge stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, did all the all the stuff you should do before you jump into this and right. learn <laughs> right. everything. And I was lucky to have him as a mentor, a Los Angeles homicide detective as a mentor, and a Detroit homicide uh, detective as a mentor. Hmm. So, so were you allowed to assist at all as a, a PI? I mean, I know they shined um, the you Dallas, on, but... Oh, as the, uh, with the Dallas Police Department, uh-huh. uh, I was such a... They called me PETA. I didn't know this until later, pain in the ass, because <laughs> I had a habit of constantly... Yeah, isn't that rude? I mean, I still think that's rude. Um, but I wanted answers. And so I'm known for calling them an enormous amount of time. Um, and... It, I, it used to be, uh, evidently, they work in these, it's open, it's an open area, and uh, whoever saw my phone number would yell out, who wants to talk to PETA? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Isn't that awful? What is the relationship you have with them now? <laughs> you know, the, it's actually a lot better. Um, I got to, one of the... One of the police officers, who is the first one on the scene, um, his son called me and said, I want to I talk to you about Angie's case. He grew up. This is how big of a case it was for so many people because she was probably the most innocent person that should not have died. And so it affected him so much that his own son knew about the case. Mm-hmm. And this man was a beat cop, you know, and... Uh, had seen a lot of cases. So his son and I are good friends, and we talk every, you know, couple of weeks. Um, and I met with him when I went back to Texas for another case. Um, the female officer that responded, she and I have been friends for years, and she's mm-hmm. recently retired. Um, the detectives, a lot of them have passed away now. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that are alive, I'm I'm talking to, and they still, I think they still use that word, Peter, around <laughs> me. Um, I think it's a lasting effect for all of them. 
Oh, amazing. But that's what you have to do to get answers. Right. You do. You have to be a, a loud voice, a clanging gong. Yes. For sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, uh, Sheila, I have a lot more questions to ask you, but we do need to take a quick break to recognize sure. our sponsors. So we'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Sheila Wysocki, and she is a specialist in uh, investigating and sometimes even solving cold cases. We're talking about the case that got her started, which is the murder of her college roommate, Angie Samoda. So, um, so Sheila, how long after you called in 2004 was it that they let you know that there's a DNA match with somebody other than Russell Buchanan? It came back 2008, and then it took us two years to get to trial. So it took a long time. And, and uh, go ahead. And Donald Best was in prison at the time, or was he out? So very interesting. He Donald Best was in prison at the time that uh, they went and spoke to him. So he could not say no to having a swab done. And then um, he was getting out, so they were able to keep him in. Okay, so so he was in prison in Texas? 
Yes, he yes, he has always so, been in Texas. Oh, I guess te- te- Texas doesn't have a law that everybody goes to prison has to give their DNA up. I at that time, that's all I knew is that they swabbed him that day. Um, mm. The thing he was not upset that the two, it, you know, being a woman, I do want to say this. The female detective was uh, Linda Crumb, and then there was a male detective with her. When they went in to speak with the beast, he would not speak to Linda. He looked at her and said, and this is a hopefully R-rated, but he goes, all women are bitches. I'm Mm -hmm. not talking to her. And so he would only talk to the male. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Right. he, he was something, and he spoke to the detective, the male detective, and then they said they wanted uh, his swab, you know, his mouth, and they did. And all he cared about through the entire interview was he was missing his lunch. Now, they just talked about a murder of a young woman, but that meant nothing to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long was the trial? Oh, it's forever. Um, probably the most emotional thing I've ever been through. Um, it was two weeks because in the middle of it, Donald Best went to have elective surgery. Elective surgery. Elective surgery. Okay. Yeah. It, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. That the taxpayers in Texas paid for. Interesting. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of people that would react to that (laughs) I was one of those people that reacted to that you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but I you know it was a great uh, you know we got to be there to support the family we got to see you know Angie's sorority sisters I was not in the sorority because I dropped out of school after I never went back on campus um, after Mm -hmm. you know she was murdered uh, until my son went there But, um, you know, being at a trial, I will say the one thing that shocked me the most was, you know, it was packed in the courtroom because it was a death penalty case and it was a cold case. And we would come in, you know, on the right side and on the left side, it was like, people that didn't know the case or weren't involved in it. And it was like a, you know, they were getting out popcorn for it. Mm-hmm. And at one point somebody walked in and they said, Oh, I hear this is a great case and start talking about it in front of the mom. And I'm like, you know what? Let's, why don't y'all stand over here? Because this is the, the mother of the girl that has been murdered. I think sometimes people forget there was a human being behind that victim mm-hmm. and a family. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have had a, an amazing journey. And as I was just saying to you when we were on, on the break is uh, you have a unique position working on cold cases to be able to relate directly to the victim's pain when you, or not the, vi- the victim's family, rather, the victim's family's right. pain when you <laughs> delve back into these cold cases. I'm sure that benefits everybody. Well, I, I get to tell them what stage they're in. And I, I have a template. I mean, I know when we first start, 
you know, there's a roller coaster coming and, you know, until you get to that trial and the trial's even worse than everything you've been through before. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to kind of walk them through. And then even after we finish their cases, I still keep in touch with all of the victims' families. And they call me on, on Christmas and they call me on Thanksgiving and they call me on the date that their child was found and they call me on the date of their birthday. So I keep in touch with these families for a long They're like part of my world. So Sheila... For families that may be listening to this program that have a missing person or an investigator is working on a cold case or or is interested in doing so, what steps do you take when you first get the case? What do I do? First thing I do is talk to the families because I don't take very many cases. I have to be able to work with the, the families. So that means they have to follow. I have a rule list. You know, you can't contact the suspect. You can't, you know, do social media. You don't have fake accounts on social media. All those kind of things they have to be able to follow. And I am very clear if they don't follow it, I'm done that day. There's Mm -hmm. no second chances because if they can't follow the simple things, when we get into the hard things, it's a nightmare. And so I've turned more cases away just based on the first phone call. Um, You know, everybody's angry. I will say you have a right to be angry, but, you know, we're not out for revenge. I won't take cases that people are revengeful. Um, Mm -hmm. I have walked away from cases. I have, um, you know, people that have contacted the suspects, sending them, you know, electric chairs and stuff like that. And I always find out. So um, after we talk, then we go through the process of looking at their file. If it's a 50-year-old case and there's no physical evidence, we're we're not going to be able to help them. So I'm not Mm going to say to anybody, I'm going to help you if I can't. And then I do what is called crowdsourcing justice is what it's called. And if we take a case then I work with the public and I work with the media and we get our cases public, very, very public. Let me just tell you a little bit about um, the way Sheila conducts herself with investigating cold cases. Her style is probably a little different from a typical private investigator. She actually believes the media is her friend in every case. Now, you know, when you're doing a case like she's doing, a cold case, media attention is important. When you're doing a criminal defense case, then the media may not be your friend. So it really kind of depends on the kind of case you're working on. But in her case, the more the case is publicized, the better the chances are of people that may have information can come forward. Because as time goes on, people who may have withheld information initially because they were afraid of of their consequences, may be feeling comfortable enough to come forward. So she uses um, crowdsourcing, she calls it, where she presents the case to the public in an in-depth manner so she can get feedback. And possibly some of that feedback will help solve the case. Sometimes, you know, 
somebody out there may have an idea that you haven't thought of. Maybe they have a technique you haven't thought of. Maybe they've experienced something in their own family that sparks an idea that they pass on. So that crowdsourcing idea in this kind of situation is really uh, interesting and provides information that often helps solve a case. So in, let's see, 2018, I think Sheila hosted something called PI Experience in Nashville uh, at, a, at a thing called CrimeCon, which is a true crime convention. And the people involved, the participants, actually investigated the Jonathan's Cruz case, an active case that she was working on. So the idea of crowdsourcing is brilliant. Uh, it's a way to bring people together a way that people who think differently, have different ideas, come together and work together, work as a team. Um, I know in this case, she brought a number of investigators that I know personally together to work on this case, and everybody brings a different aspect to the table. So um, that's what she says, too, that everybody brings a different aspect that she can use on a case. Um, so... Then she branched out and produced a podcast that she called, without warning, the Lauren Agee case. And this podcast focused on active cases. Sheila produced a podcast in 2018 entitled, Without Worrying, the Lauren Agee case. And this podcast focused on a case that she was working on about this young woman 22 years old, who was found deceased in a lake at the bottom of a cliff where she had been camping with some friends. She gets involved in the case and reveals live audio tapes from police detectives, witnesses, and suspects on the podcast. And since she did that, it has been on the top podcast charts on iTunes and the, what they call the new and noteworthy section. So if you listen to iTunes, please log in to Sheila's case called Without Warning, the Lauren G case. Now, hopefully we're trying to get Sheila back online here. If we aren't able to do that, then uh, we'll have her on another time. But I just want to say to you folks out there, cold cases are difficult They are um, cases that go back to the 80s, for example, Um, in even the early 90s. Many people are deceased. Many people have gone different paths where they're difficult to be found, such as being homeless. And if you have been around homeless encampments in the past three years, you know that the people are moving from one to another frequently. It's not like it used to be where a homeless encampment was fairly stable. And even if it was torn down for sanitary reasons, you knew where the people moved to. That doesn't happen any longer. And so it's very, very difficult to find witnesses, even if you have their names, even if you have their dates of birth, social security number, last known address. It's very difficult to find them in 2021 when a case happened 40 years ago. 
So I applaud Sheila for what she's doing because this is not easy work. Cold cases, as every police officer knows and as every private investigator knows, are probably the most difficult kinds of cases to investigate. So I happen to be working on a couple of cold cases right now, personally. Both of them happen to be criminal defense cases. Uh, But uh, I can tell you without question, going back to 1992 and 1984 to try to find people that had information at the time is very hard. So I'm going to close with this comment I thank Sheila for being willing to be on the show. I thank all of you that are listening, and I hope you were able to get something out of this segment. It's Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. It's PIs Declassified. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 